Give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us and passing it down to us that we have it even today. It's been read in a language that we understand something that we take for granted, a gift of the Reformation even. Father, we ask for more than earthly understanding this morning. We ask for spiritual understanding. We ask that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things from your law. We pray that your spirit would teach us and train us Father, that you would even correct us and rebuke us for righteousness' sake. That you would work your word into our hearts that we might be made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, that you would help us to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Father, I pray that you would be with your people and encourage them this day. And I pray that you would help me, your servant. Father, would you protect me from error? And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All of us, every single one of us, have had the moments where we have beheld something so grand something so wonderful, something so beautiful that it left us speechless. Even me, a man of many words, something has left us speechless. It may have been the sun rising over the ocean, a majestic 
mountain peak, a rare, delicate flower, the face of a newborn child, a reunion with a long-lost friend, a game-winning touchdown right as time expires, a home run in the bottom of the ninth with two outs, two strikes, a personal encounter with a hero, your bride, doors open and she's coming down the aisle to meet you at the altar, or maybe a priceless piece of art in a museum, whatever it was, whatever it may have been, very likely that you not only remember what it was, what you beheld, but very likely you even remember how beholding it made you feel. Right? Not just what it was, but how it made you feel. I think, or I believe actually, that reading Revelation 21, 1 through 8, offers us a similar experience. In these words right here on this page, in these words, we are offered something so much more grand, so much more wonderful, so much more beautiful than anything we could ever behold here on this earth, no matter how awesome it is. For right here on this page, we not only get a glimpse of what awaits us in heavenly glory, but we actually get a glimpse of the God who makes it all possible for us. I mean, sure, it's easy to read this passage and come away enamored and enthralled with the gifts that await us in eternity. But if we walk away this morning more in love with the gifts than the giver of the gifts, then we're doing it all wrong. We're doing it wrong. Simply put, this morning's text ought to stir within each and every one of us who are Christians a greater love, a greater love for our supremely grand, our infinitely wonderful, and our gloriously beautiful God and Savior. And while earthly encounters of grandeur and wonder and beauty might leave us speechless, a similar result here won't work. Won't work for a sermon. I have to talk, don't I? So here's how I want to lead us through the passage this morning. Because I've already said it, our aim is to have our love for God stirred within us in a greater way. I want to show you how these verses reveal seven truths about God. Seven truths about God and his eternal purposes for us in redemptive history. So for those of you, and I know many of you are taking notes, these seven truths are going to make up our outline this morning. I know it's rare when I have a seven-point outline, but that doesn't mean an hour-and-a-half sermon, I promise. Verse 1, verse 1 reveals to us that God is the God who renews. God is the God who renews. That's our first 
truth, the God who renews. You'll remember from last week that John has just witnessed the final judgment that will take place before the great white throne. And you're going to remember too that when that throne appeared, and you can look for yourself in verse 11, what happened? The earth and the sky flees away. This signifies something for us. It shows us the end of the current cosmic order, the end of the world as we know it, the end of this physical realm that has been marred and scarred by sin since the fall of mankind way back in the Garden of Eden. And though it is an end, I want to be clear here, it's not a recreation. It's not a recreation. This is clear not only from verse 5, and you can look down there. Notice that God says he is making all things new, not all new things. He's making all things new. It's clear not only there, but from other passages of Scripture. We don't have time to go through all those, but if you want to jot down, you can go back and look in context at Matthew 19, 28. There Jesus speaks of this coming new earth as a, quote, regeneration. He calls it a regeneration. Thus, in the context there, he's making a connection between our rebirth and our renewal and the rebirth and renewal of the earth and the heavens. So this is a recreation, a new heaven and new earth. You see, God is in the restoration business In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. And what did he say? It was good. But that goodness was corrupted by sin. And God is now and has been in the business of restoring it. And we get this clearly in the image that's afforded to us in those words, and the sea was no more. Those are important words. In the ancient world, even in John's time, the sea was a picture of chaos and evil. It was the sea from where evil came. Remember, where did the beast come from? From up out of the sea, right? Even think back to the days of Job, Leviathan and the great evil came up from out of the sea. The sea is evil. So by saying the sea was no more, what John is seeing, what's being communicated is that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more evil. Evil is gone. There's not even a source for evil. The, the groanings of the earth that Paul talks about in Romans 8, here in the new heavens and the new earth, the groanings of the earth are finally going to be answered. These groanings will be answered in the earth, the new heavens, the new earth, it will be renewed. It's going to be restored to its formal glory. And that's where we're going to live. We're going to dwell in the new heaven, the new earth. I know we like to think that we're going to live in some cloudy, ethereal, spiritual, happy place, right? That we're going to float up to some plane. No, we're going to live in a real and renewed heaven and earth, a new heaven and earth. You see, God is the God who renews and he's going to renew heaven and earth. And that brings us to our second truth. God not only renews, but he also receives God also receives, that's our second truth. Verse two reveals this to us, that God receives his bride. The backdrop of this is Isaiah 62, two through five. There the prophet Isaiah had seen this vision of a redeemed Jerusalem that is made righteous by God's coming. 
and that receives a new name. And this new name reflects a marriage relationship, a relationship of love with God. And now John sees this promise as being fulfilled, not in the first appearing of Jesus, but in his second appearing on the last day. And though John is going to describe this Jerusalem that he sees in greater detail in verses 9 through 21. And that's what we're going to focus on next week. We're going to see a lot of description of it. It's important for us this morning that we understand what we see. This renewed Jerusalem is not defined by her streets or her buildings, but she's defined by her people. Jerusalem is defined by her people. She appears to John just as she's described over in Hebrews 12, 23, where Mount Zion, Jerusalem, is described as the assembly of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You see, this Jerusalem consists of the living stones having been built up by God. Those who are adorned with the righteousness of Christ and who are transformed by the spirit of the living God who are now presented. As it says here, how is Jerusalem presented? As a bride adorned for her husband. Don't get confused. This isn't a a city presented as a bride. We are the city. We are Jerusalem. The church is being presented as the bride. This is a stunning picture. This helps us understand what comes next in the book. It's a portrait. Remember, Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. And even here at the end, the pictures continue. It's a picture of that marriage supper of the Lamb that we saw back in chapter 19. It's a reminder that on the last day, God's redeeming work in us will finally and fully be done and we will be presented as the bride and God will receive us. Christ will receive us. And even more, not only will we be received, God will dwell with us. That's our third truth. God dwells with his people. I know you're disappointed. You thought Dan's gonna come up with seven R's here. I gave up somewhere around Wednesday. Okay, God dwells with his people. Technically, God tabernacles with his people. In verse three, John hears a loud voice from heaven. And this loud voice declares, you can look there with me again at verse three. Behold, the tabernacle, our dwelling place of God is with man. He will tabernacle or dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That should take your breath away. This is biblically monumental language. It was first promised to Abraham. It was then codified in Leviticus 26.12. It's further renewed throughout the Old Testament, firmly established in the new covenant promises, particularly Ezekiel 36 and 37, and then partially fulfilled with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This is a monumental promise. Listen to how commentator Simon Kistemacher 
calls it. He calls it a golden thread woven into the fabric of scripture from beginning to end. A golden thread woven into the fabric of scripture from beginning to end. Even so, don't miss the reality behind the promise. Don't miss the reality behind it. The reality is that that's the promise. It's a restoration. That promise actually existed at one point. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, experienced that in the Garden of Eden, did they not? Did they not live in fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden? Were they not there with God? Was he not there in the garden? If he wasn't, why did they hide from him when they sinned? Hopefully you see now that the book of Revelation here at the end is a return to what God had always intended it to be. Well, it was God's plan for it to carry this way so that his glory could be magnified in returning it to this. But you understand God's returning it to its former glory so that it may be even more glorified by his grace and his mercy. It's mind-blowing. It really is. That former reality where our first parents before sin were in the presence of God is going to be enjoyed by us one day. It's partially enjoyed by us now, is it not? Does the Holy Spirit, God himself, not live within us? Yes, he does. But on that day, when sin and death is no more, when we are in his presence, God will indeed fully fully dwell with his people and we shall live forever, not just in his heavenly home. Listen, heaven is great, right? We talk a lot about heaven, but shouldn't we talk more about who is in heaven? We get to live in the presence of God. We get to live before his very face. The ironic benediction becomes reality. His face always shines Upon us. His face always shines upon us. And because of this, because he will dwell with us, it's only natural that he will comfort us. That's our fourth truth. God comforts his people. I couldn't even stick with the D's. I had to go to another letter. God comforts his people. There's not many more beautiful words in scripture than what we find in verse four. Would you look at those again with me? Verse four of chapter 21. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I want to have you take a moment. I want you to try and think over your life about every burden that you've ever carried. Try. Now add to that every tear that you've ever shed. Now add to that every fear that has ever gripped your heart. Oh, and just add to that every worry that you've ever had to endure. Oh, and every loss that you've ever suffered. Can you even fathom it? Doesn't matter how old you are. Can you even fathom it? Think about it because I can't. 
The reality of this fallen world is that these things are normal. That's the reality of the fallen world. These things, tears, worry, fear, loss, sorrow, all of these things are normal. They're actually expected. Even on our best days, most of us, I'm not talking about optimism versus pessimism here. Most of us carry around a latent expectation that something of this nature is going to happen. We expect it to happen to us every day. And for those of us who are more pessimistic, we just kind of wonder, is there going to be a vessel big enough to carry all that I'm going to face? And now I want you to try and picture what we see in verse 4. Now try and picture what we see in verse 4. It's mind-blowing, right? None of it. None of it. None of it will be there. And I think what captures my heart the most is that it's God's own hand that will wipe away our tears. Same one that the psalmist says captures our tears in a bottle. It's the hand that wipes away our tears. And notice that these tears, what a picture of life. These tears are still on our cheeks as we enter into glory. Do you notice that? They're not just magically gone as we go in. They're still on our cheeks as we enter in and they're wiped away. It's gorgeous. That's the fallen world in which we live. But there's comfort from the comforter. There's a coming day when what we confess to start our service, what we know to be true, we're actually going to not just know it, we're going to experience it. I think we're going to sing psalms in heaven. Okay, I know we're going to sing psalms in heaven. We're going we're to be able to say, the Lord has turned our mourning into dancing. He has done this. He's loosed our sackcloth and closed us with gladness. We're going to sing his praise. We're not silent anymore. We're rejoicing. He has done this. Great and mighty is our God. We give thanks to him forever and ever. God will comfort his people. He comforts us now. How much more will he comfort us then? Our fifth truth is found in verses five and six. And it is this. God fulfills his promises. God fulfills his promises. It's great what we've just talked about, right? But there's always doubters. So if there be any doubt in our minds and the future that awaits us, God puts them to rest in two statements. The first is when he says, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. You know, if ever there were doubters, it would be John's original audience. We read of all they suffered way back in chapters two and three. And indeed, their sufferings have been shared by many throughout history, even until now. Knowing this, God does what only he can do. He swears by himself. He gives his word as testimony to his truth. So just as the churches in Asia heard these words in the first century as it was circulated and made to them. And just as you hear it read in this congregation this morning in Granville, Ohio, here in the 21st century, 
When you hear these things read in your midst, you can rest assured knowing that the God who promises is also the God who fulfills it. He has sworn by himself that these things will happen. And then he gives it an exclamation point. And that's the second statement. It comes in verse six. He says, it is done. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This is a great picture. God is standing at the end of history, speaking to John, who's in the midst of history, to declare that the future is already certain. He's saying that everything is done. And for those of you who are interested the phrase in your ESV that's translated as it is done is literally everything is done. That's plural. Everything is done. Not one thing. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Everything is done. What God is saying is all of his decrees are fulfilled. You remember back in chapter five, John sees the one on the throne and in his hand is a scroll and there's no one found who's worthy to open that scroll except the lamb who was worthy to open that scroll and you remember what we said was on that scroll all of history all of God's decrees for all of history only one is able to carry out those decrees particularly salvation history the only one who is able to defeat our enemies is there God is saying everything is done All of that is finished. It will most certainly and assuredly be fulfilled. George Ladd comments well on this. This is what he says. He says, contrary to the confusing and chaotic picture presented to us in our experiences, the purposes of God and redemption are as certain as though they have already taken place. The future is not uncertain to those who trust God. It's a big statement. The future is not uncertain to those who trust God. It got me thinking how people always say that the only certain things in life are death and taxes, right? Your people say that. Sometimes I wonder if those people know Jesus. Because listen, sure, death, taxes, but everything promised in God's word is certain. Everything promised in God's word is absolutely certain and absolutely worthy of all of our hope and all of our trust. All of it. Every single word. All the promises of God find their yes, their amen in Christ Jesus. And so we say amen. Verse six reveals another truth about God as well. And this is our sixth truth this morning. And it's that God satisfies God satisfies his people. You see, the God who stands at the end of history is not only the speaker of truth, but he's also the giver of life. He freely offers to all who thirst to come and drink from the spring of the water of life. For only there are they gonna truly be satisfied. And here again, I want you to think. Think for a moment about all the things that you do in order to bring some kind of satisfaction in your life. Think about all the things that you do in order to bring about some kind of satisfaction. How do you 
spend your time? How do you spend your money? How do you spend your energy? In what or whom do you invest so that you can feel a sense of worth or relevance or purpose? How exhausting is it? How tired are you this morning? Here's the big question. Are you ever really fully satisfied? Are you ever really fully satisfied? I'm not talking about like Thanksgiving dinner satisfied, right? You're like, oh man, I gotta change pants. This is, I'm full. And then an hour later, you're going back for more, right? I'm talking fully satisfied. Or do you just find yourself striving for more and more and more? Maybe you're like Sisyphus, just pushing that boulder up the hill, rolls right back down, push it back up, rolls right back down. Remember what Jesus said in John 10? Verse 10, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Listen, we experience that now in part when we learn to rest in him, when we learn to trust in him, to abide in him. But the picture here is that when he returns, when we get to experience his eternal presence, we will forever be satisfied as we drink deeply of the water he supplies. Water that costs us nothing, It doesn't cost us time. It doesn't cost us money. It doesn't cost us energy. Water that reminds us that we belong to him, that he is our God, that we're his people, that we are his his bride, that we forever and ever get to drink from that stream. That's encouraging. I mean, we, we get to drink of that in part now, and yet we neglect it. Imagine if we really embraced the truth that it will fully be ours one day and we get the taste of it now. Wouldn't we stop all this striving? Probably not. But wouldn't we turn to it less and less and turn to him more and more and more? Well, now in verses seven and eight, we come to our seventh and final truth from our passage. And it's this, God is the God who calls. God is the God who calls. These verses are bookends. They clearly connect us right back to the first few chapters of the book. You might remember, it's been like two years ago. At the end of those seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, every single one of them, we heard this phrase. The one who conquers. Jesus had a promise. He had a lot to say to these churches, right? Most of them, here's the things you do good. To all of them, here's the things you need to work on. They had a promise, the one who conquers. The only other time that phrase appears is right here. The one who conquers, but why here? Well, look, I mean, having shown his people the realities of living for Jesus, living for him, Between the time of his ascension and his second coming, these cycles of history, these seven cycles, having shown them the realities of that time, God now wants to remind them of that call. And what's the call? To endure, to conquer, 
to endure, to hold fast to their confession in the tumultuous days ahead. Remember, there's no easy escapism in the book of Revelation. Conquering through Christ is not going to be easy. There are paths to compromise at every turn. If you don't believe me, just look at verse eight. They're all there. That's not even all of them. There's a lot of them there. All of those are things that were addressed back in the early letters to the churches. Cowardice, sexual immorality, murder, all of them are addressed there. Those are all the things that Jesus was warning the church. Don't turn away to that. Don't do that. Flee from that. Don't do that. Cling to me. They're all listed there. There's compromises at every turn. Paths that we can take that can serve to prove our professions of faith to be untrue. To show that our professions were just lip service. They weren't genuine. And so here, because this book was written to us while we're still in this age, still in this day, this time between Christ's first and second coming, God still calls his people to faith and to faithfulness. He calls them to endure. He calls them to not lose heart. He calls them to set their sights on things that are above, not things on earth, to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. He calls them to walk by the spirit and not by the flesh. Is that not a call that all of us need to hear? Is there anyone in here that does not need a call to endurance? I need it. I need it every day. And I not only need a call to endurance, I need to be reminded of the promises that accompany it. Do you need that? That's what he gives us. He says that the one who conquers has this. All these wonderful and beautiful and glorious promises. God says, this is our heritage. It's the inheritance that we receive Not the things, but the adoption. It's the adoption. Being adopted into his family. That's what I need to be reminded of. Belonging to God as his child is the heart of everything else. Belonging to God, one who's been bought by the blood of Jesus, is at the heart of all the things that flow from that. Which is exactly what I was aiming to do this morning, is to remind you of that. We've seen from these verses that God is the God who renews. He's the God who receives. He's the God who dwells. He's the God who comforts. He's the God who fulfills. He's the God who satisfies. And he's the God who calls. And by focusing our attention on these things, by focusing our attention on the giver of the gifts, who he is more than the gifts themselves, I really hoped that each of us could be moved to a greater love for our supremely grand, infinitely wonderful, gloriously beautiful, and what other superlative you can put in there, God and Savior, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I really hope that's true for you. Brothers and sisters, I hope that each and every one of you love God more and more and more, not just this morning, but every single morning forever.
endeavor. Amen and amen. Would you grab your bulletin?